The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of September 3rd, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about the biggest news from the first week of the U.S. Open, among them the rise of American tennis underdogs, Taylor Townsend and Christy Ahn. Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders will also join us to discuss rising expectations for the Cleveland Browns, dwindling contracts for running backs, and other storylines at the start of the NFL season. Finally, Sheba Rawson will be here to explain how her fan group, Portland's Timbers Army, has responded to Major League Soccer's ban on political messaging. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is the author of the book's Word Freak. In a few seconds of panic, your friend and mine, Stefan Fatsis. Hi, Josh. Hello, friend. How was your weekend? Uh, I went to the U.S. Open, and we will talk about that in our first segment. I was offering you a smooth transition into the tennis. I went there for journalism. I went to my couch and watched a lot of the U.S. Open. That seems like good preparation for our segment on the U.S. Open. All right, Stefan, the U.S. Open, the big story from the opening week was, for me at least, a couple of unseated Americans both of whom actually lost in the fourth round on Monday, ending their underdog runs. But neither 23-year-old Taylor Townsend or 27-year-old Christian had ever made it that far to Grand Slam. Both had been at times on the cusp of quitting the sport. Now they've each earned $280,000. And due to the ranking points they've won, they're both going to be in the top 100 of the women's rankings. It was joyous, Stefan, to watch both of them win on Sunday. As I did. Maybe we can start with Townsend. I wrote a piece about her, which I mentioned that she'd been done pretty dirty by the U.S. Tennis Association. She was the number one junior in 2012. She was 16. She won junior Grand Slams. The USDA refused to pay her way to go to the Open that year. They wanted her to focus on her fitness, which was another way of saying they thought she was overweight. She since had some success on the tour. She made it to the third round of the French Open five years ago. But she's also had some extremely low moments. In 2016, she played a 69-year-old woman in the first round of a tournament in Alabama. She told a writer from The Undefeated that she considered that event to be a slap in the face. And she plays a totally uh, kind of unique style in this day and age, charging the net. So it was fun to see her play just because it's fun to see her play. But also, just given that backstory, it was, you know, emotional for her. And it was emotional, I think, for folks who knew about her story to watch her succeed at this level. You know, I remember the USTA refusing to fund her because of her weight. And I think we may have even had a conversation about it at the time on the show. The thing that I'm curious about, Josh, is is she talked about how much that influenced her struggles in the game, the fact that the governing body for the sport that funds promising young tennis players told her that they wouldn't pay for her anymore? I mean, did that really impact her? Or was there some sort of alchemy of problems that led to her not succeeding at all? It's a great question. I think the acrimony that that generated and the fact that she subsequently broke from the USTA because of it and for good reason, I, I think, for because of that sort of, you know, being publicly called out for your weight as a 16-year-old. I mean, why would you trust folks in that position to be your advocates and to guide your career? I think the fact that she had to go out on her own had to have 
an effect on her career. But there's also the reality of the fact that top junior players often don't make it at the highest levels of the game. You know, I think of Stefan Kozlov, who was at one point touted as like the great American hope and who had huge success in juniors and is now similarly languishing like way, way um, far back in, in the rankings and hasn't, you know, sniffed a main draw of a Grand Slam. And then, you know, her coach that she went to, uh, Donald Young Sr., father of an American player, Donald Young, said in a New York Times article a couple of years ago, like, you know, she was broken and I had to, you know, help build her back up. She was broken emotionally. But he also said we had to work on her fitness. So there's, it wasn't necessarily that the USTA was wrong, but saying you're not allowed to play in a grand slam because you're, you know, too big. The fact that they couldn't work on her fitness as she was, you know, playing in, in juniors is just so wrongheaded. It must have been so dispiriting, humiliating for I mean, her. For this to be public? Yeah, but it's n- it's not like she didn't need to work on her fitness. Like right. every tennis player needs to work on their fitness. And it's a common issue for younger players. I think... The fact that she went with Donald Young Sr., who she had worked with as a young child, the fact that she kind of locked in on playing this style that is a throwback of rushing the net. I mean, she, she, came to the, she came to the net, what, 105 times in beating Simona Holop? Yeah. So I think that independence gave her a kind of self-reliance and self-confidence yeah. that she had to call on in these matches. Because what she said, you know, I watched her third round match against Herstea, another Romanian player. And in the first couple service games, she was just getting passed left and right. And she said it's inherent in this style of play that you're just going to get passed a lot, that you're going to look bad sometimes and you just have to keep doing it. Or, you know, you have to adjust on the fly. But she has this experience overcoming adversity, both in big ways and in small ways that I think served her well in this tournament. And then, you know, in her fourth round where she lost to Bianca Andrescu. A 19-year-old Canadian. Yeah, I mean, Townsend looked like she had no chance at all in the first set and then came back to win the second. And I'll confess, like in the third round match, I thought she, you know, based on the way the match started, it looked like she had no chance. And so that just makes her kind of easier to root for the fact that um, even within matches, she has the ability to turn around. And it really is like, seems like a microcosm for her career. Before we move on to Andrescu, who looks like a potential finalist on one half of the draw, and Serena Williams has a pretty clear path on the other half of the draw. I want to ask you about that 69-year-old that Taylor Townsend had to play. I texted you while you were at the U.S. Open and said, somebody's got to call this woman. And you, of course, being the good journalist that you are, Josh, texted back. I tried to call her. What happened? So her name's Gail Falkenberg. She had a professional tennis career. She started late, but she, like, won a match in Australian Open qualifying in the 80s when she was, I think, in her late 30s, actually. And she has taken pride in the fact that she has continued to play pro matches um, as she's become a senior citizen. And, you know, for her, it was this great accomplishment to qualify into um, a $25,000 prize pool, um, you know, minor league event in Pelham, Alabama. And then, you know, it kind of became a punchline where there's video I embedded it in my piece. She won... 12 points in the match Falkenberg did but she just like looks like she doesn't belong there. I mean, she, she was pl- 
she was playing this woman who was now in the fourth round of the U.S. Open. I mean, it, and it looked absurd. Um, and so I think, you know, Falkenberg is perhaps sick of being cast as a foil in this way and used the, this moment for her that was like this great accomplishment is like Taylor Townsend's low point and a slap in the face. So when I called her, she, you know, when she found out why I was calling, she hung up on me. So I don't hold a grudge. I kind of understand why she wouldn't want to talk about it, but I think it was it was worth a shot. Uh, you said you told me that you thought Andrescu was likely to you know had the look like the person that could make it to the finals here. Um, she's like what twenty one, twenty two, and O in her last matches. She hasn't lost since she hasn't March. lost a match that she's finished since Acapulco against Sophia Kennan, which I, yeah, it was in March, and since then she won um, one of the you know big tournaments just below Grand Slam level um, in Indian Wells. That's like kind of considered the fifth major. It's a huge tournament. Then she won another really big tournament um, in Canada where she's uh, from. And other than that, she's just been injured all year. But she's never lost to a top 10 player in her career. She had this meteoric rise where she went from being kind of in the low hundreds to being this year so far, the best player in the world or injured. So it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, I I would ha- I have a hard time seeing how she would lose before the the final, but, you know, anything anything can happen. But in, um, in that tournament in Canada, she beat Serena Williams in the final, but Serena had back spasms and, and had to withdraw. So if it's an Andrescu-Serena final, that'll be uh, – quite the scene. And Andrescu is just, she's 19. She fears no one. She has an extremely aggressive game. Um, she looks like she kind of has the bearing of a star. This could be kind of recency bias just because she's winning, but she's going to be, I think, the next no, kind of looks, big thing in the sport. She's got attitude on the court, which is great. She looks like she has no fucks to give, and she's 19. She doesn't seem to be intimidated by any situation or, or any player at this point. All right, let's talk about Christy on a Korean-American player. Grew up very close to the National Tennis Center where the U.S. Open is played. Um, played in the U.S. Open when she was in high school, um, but had not been back in the, to the main draw until this year. Um, her ten- pro tennis career had had a lot of the same low points that Townsend's had, but not really any of the, the high points. And this was the high point for her. And then during the tournament, Ben Rothenberg of the New York Times, who we've had on the show many times, wrote a piece about her backstory, about how she um, turned down the prize money from that first U.S. Open because her parents didn't want her to lose her amateur status, went to Stanford, was the captain of the team. Her parents, her, her father, agreed to fund her career for three years. And then once that three years was over, he was excited about, oh, she's going to quit tennis and join the corporate world. But she refused to quit. And this is what happened because of that refusal. But this was a story that kind of resonated way beyond the tennis world. Like a lot of my friends were talking about it. There was a sort of like charm to her parents saying she should quit. Like it was, it didn't seem mean-spirited, them saying that she should quit and join the corporate world. But it also was just really bizarre and not what you usually hear from tennis parents. It didn't seem mean-spirited, but it did seem not particularly supportive. <laughs> if your kid is excelling at something at a national level, 
you'd think, you know, most parents would not say, all right, I'm just waiting for this to end. You've got three years and then we're out of here. Well, they think they're being supportive. I mean, and by all rights, like her pro tennis career was not a success. Sure. She was not winning um, matches on the main tour level. She was not even, you know, high enough ranking to get into Grand Slam tournaments, much less succeed in them. And, you know, it's the, the same with Townsend. A lot of these stories that end up in success, you have these low moments and you have to push through them and don't forget, you know, about your your dreams and keep striving or whatever the cliches are. But a lot of cases, you don't succeed and then you then you just quit. Sure, and that's and, the majority of them that that we just don't hear about. Well, and the other factor that we haven't mentioned is that it's really expensive to be a professional tennis player and not succeed and not win tournaments and not make money. Yeah, I mean, her parents had the means to support her. And tennis is different. You know, golf and, and tennis are similar in a lot of ways in terms of being individual sports where the money you earn is based on your, um, you know, success at these individual tournaments. But the way that tennis is set up if you're outside like the top 100, you just can't make money in the sport because the fields aren't big enough. The prize money in the minor league tournaments isn't big enough. And you have to travel right. all the time. And it also – And you can't afford to pay a, 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 a therapist. You can't right. afford it, it a becomes, coach or a trainer. It becomes this vicious cycle where you don't earn enough money to pay the people who could help you earn more money. I just want to read like four paragraphs from Ben's story. <laughs> First is uh, her father, Don, on, quote, she said, Dad, you didn't give me a dime for college tuition, so why don't you support me for three years? I want to play tennis. That was my dream, and you cut it short, said Don on, who's an accountant. I was the person who said go to college. We shook hands. That was the deal. Christiane recalled her father's glee late in 2017, the last year of their deal. I swear he had a calendar countdown, she said. He's like, we're almost there. End of 2017. Get ready to look for jobs. Do you have a resume ready? When Ann's results picked up in 2017 and she was able to sustain a career on her own, her parents were not thrilled. She's got the education. Why is she hanging around here? Asked her mother, Faye. (laughs) Ben wrote another sweet story about her. Um, her so went on made the uh, U.S. Open when she was a teenager. She lost to Dinara Safina, who was for a time number one in the world. Then Safina, you know, congratulated on on Instagram for making it back into the tournament and making it to you know to the fourth round. And on was kind of surprised that Safina even remembered who she was. But there was this paragraph in that piece that I thought was telling us quote where she says. The only difference, this is Dinara Safina, who had to quit the game because of injuries. She says, the only difference between those players and challengers, which is the minor leagues, and the ones who make it on tour, is we believe much more in ourselves. That's the thing. I told her to believe more in this in, in herself. They all have the game, but I don't know why they think they're not good enough. And I would give maybe one Pinocchio, couple Pinocchios to that. Like, there's some truth to it. Like, when you watch players who are not at the top level, they hit shots that are as good as the best players and they just aren't as consistent. And whether that's physical or mental or mental and physical, whatever the, you know, however you would combine those percentages. But like the thing with Christian Stefan, though, is that it's not really for lack of opportunity. She's been trying um, to make it on tour for a very long time. 
And I think this breakthrough for her is maybe a little different than for Townsend. Like, I don't want to tell her to, you know, quit and join McKinsey or something. She should keep playing for as long as she to keep playing. And she has a little bit of a nest egg now. But she's not, I don't think she has the game to be like a long-term star. And that's kind of makes this moment even better and more special for her. And you saw her in the fourth round just get destroyed. So destroyed by Elise Mertens. Yeah. And I think, you know, she's wrapped up like a mummy. She's got her knee wrapped, her elbow wrapped. Um, you know, it's been a, a grind for her in the in the tournament. And so who knows um, if that's going to have any kind of long-term effect. But, you know, the, the fact that I don't think she's going to become like a stalwart in Grand Slams doesn't minimize the accomplishment in any way. No, it also doesn't mean that she may not. She may wake up today and say, you know, this was the achievement, the pinnacle of my my dream. This seems like a pretty practical person who excelled at Stanford, who does have career options going forward. You know, in Ben's piece in The Times, she said, when I'm done, I'm done, but I don't want to have any regrets. I want to make sure that I'm maximizing my potential, that I'm gonna that I'm going out there and having fun. And she certainly did that. And again, I will say, like, the fact that she got these ranking points and this prize money, it will give her more opportunities sure. to play in more tournaments. And I mean, automatic qualification more... into the next set of majors, right? Yeah, I think she'll definitely get into the Aussie Open. I mean, the rankings fluctuate, so it'll just depend on her performance and other players' performance going forward. But I think she would probably at least get into the Australian Open, and then we'll see from there. All right, so coming up in the second week of this major, we already talked about Serena Williams's chances. She's the only woman left in the field to even make a major final. It seemed like since she's come back, Serena has gotten favorable draws in the Grand Slams, and Andrescu will not be a favorable matchup for anyone, but, you know, it's looking not so bad for for Serena to at least make the final. Then on the men's side, Novak Djokovic had to retire with a shoulder injury against Stan Wawrinka, and this opens up the possibility of the first ever match between Federer and Nadal at the US Open, and that would be in the final and would be, I don't want to exaggerate, but we can say with certainty that it would be one of the biggest matches in their careers and would fill the biggest hole. Right. Like they've never played in the biggest stadium, Arthur Ashe Stadium in tennis. Sunday afternoon, that would be huge for sports. Josh, we've gone through the entire segment, but we haven't mentioned Coco Goff. You were at the great Coco Goff, Naomi Osaka match. Well, it wasn't really great, but it was continue. A, it wasn't a great match. <laughs> it was great because of what happened at great the end of the theater. match. It was great theater. Yeah. It was touching. Yeah. It was heartfelt. It yeah. seemed genuine. Yeah. All of it was yeah. sort of good sports stuff. Yeah, good sports stuff. Um, shall we play a clip from the post-match event? Yes. Coco, this crowd absolutely loves you. Wipe those tears away. Tell us what Naomi told you at the net. Um, she told me that I did amazing and good luck and then she asked if I could do an on-court interview with her and I said no because I knew I was going to cry the whole time but she encouraged me to do it. So Osaka is being very gracious there after absolutely ob- obliterating her 15-year-old opponent who was incredibly talented as we've seen at Wimbledon and at the US Open but was just not up to Osaka's level. In that match, Osaka was actually not up to Belinda Bencic's level in the next round. But on that night, Osaka destroyed Goff and was uh, very gracious. And I think the natural 
comparison there is between, you know, third round 2018 U.S. Open and the 2018 U.S. Open final in which Osaka was put in this horrible position that she did absolutely nothing to bring on herself because of the confrontation between Serena Williams and Carlos Ramos and how she was crying on the court and um, all of the zaniness that that ensued. I think we can go too far in saying that they're yeah, similar the all- moments, but it's impossible not to compare the two or think about them. The only overlap that was is that someone was crying. I mean, this was, I thought, just a a slightly older player recognizing that a 15-year-old who has had sort of unexpected success very, very early, even for women's tennis, was suffering um, from the expectations that she would do better and the feeling that she probably let people down or she believed that she let people down by by not playing as well and just by losing. Well, I think there is a comparison to be made insofar as that tennis is a sport, especially in these major events where players are judged on decorum. They're expected to be gracious in victory and in defeat. There are these staged post-match on-court interviews where they're speaking to the crowd and also to, you know, people watching at home. And so it's there is this it's different than other sports where you're graded based on rhetoric and based on manners. Mm-hmm. And I think that probably goes double for women who are always judged on those things in our society, even outside of a sporting context. And so I think Osaka is somebody who, based on her personal experience, is acutely aware yeah. of what those expectations are yeah and i think that she that it did reflect what she went through i'm not saying that osaka didn't learn something from what happened last year and was trying very consciously to avoid putting another player in a position where she felt badly but also lifting up a younger player who really did osaka recognized deserved recognition the crowd loved coco Gauff all week and what Osaka first and foremost was doing was giving the crowd, I think, the opportunity to salute her and Goff to understand that even though you lost this one time, everybody loves you and you should like get a chance to bathe in that. Last year, the Cleveland Browns went 7, 8, and 1, which if we do a quick and dirty mathematical adjustment to account for the history of Cleveland Browns is the equivalent of 16 and 0. From 2015 to 2017, the Browns went a remarkable 4-44, and but now with second-year quarterback Baker Mayfield, the newly acquired Odell Beckham Jr., and a solid young defense, everyone seems to think that the Browns will at the very least make the playoffs and at the very most contend for a Super Bowl. But what do the numbers say? Joining us now to discuss is Aaron Schatz. Aaron writes for ESPN+. He's also the founder of Football Outsiders and the editor of the Football Outsiders Almanac 2019, which you can get in print and also PDF in time for the season. Welcome back to the show, Aaron. Hey, thanks for having me back on, guys. Sure. Um, as I teased in the intro, Football Outsiders lists projected win totals for every team in the NFL. So where do you have Cleveland? And keep in mind that I have already pre-ordered my Browns championship ring. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't have the Browns as high as conventional wisdom does. Uh, The numbers, anyway, come out with them in our projections, in our simulations, with an average of 8.0 wins. So that puts them outside of a wild card spot for now. 
So a great season by Brown's standards. Better than last year. <laughs> Not great based on expectations. So kind of dig into that for us. Why does Football Outsiders expect them to not uh, make the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, their offense is still projected nice and high. I mean, Baker Mayfield had a great year for a rookie quarterback, and you've got to expect improvement in his second year. Plus, you added Odell Beckham. Obviously, that's a pretty nice addition. There is questions about the offensive line, and I think that that tampers down the offensive expectations a little bit. But where we have their projection lower than conventional wisdom is the defense. There is a lot of attention paid to the defensive talent that they added this offseason. They added Olivier Vernon and Sheldon Richardson on their defensive line, and then Greedy Williams as a cornerback, who they got in the second round of the draft, but most people thought he was a first-round talent. The problem is that, first of all, rookie cornerbacks tend to, even the top rookie cornerbacks do tend to struggle a little bit, and people are not paying attention to the talent that they lost. I mean, Jabril Peppers was a talent at safety, even if he wasn't one of the best safeties in the league. And Jamie Collins was a talent at linebacker, even if they didn't quite know what to do with him all the time. And the other problem is turnovers, which is something that us stat people talk about a lot. Turnovers tend to regress towards the mean really heavily. And Cleveland was third in the league on defense in turnovers per drive. And so that is probably going down this year. In the NFL, a lot of success is dependent on who you play during a season. Who are they playing and how does that factor into the potential to live up to the narrative? Yeah, because here's the funny thing is our projection is actually even lower than 8.0 would sound like. Like the their projection in our DVOA ratings is like 21st or 22nd, but they have one of the easiest schedules in hmm. the league. So that boosts them a little bit. And I will say subjectively, I personally think that our projections are a little too down on them. There's a little too much, you know, there's an element in our projections that is based on past performance going back even two and three years. And I do think they've changed enough of the pieces in, in Cleveland that we may be overstating that a little bit. So I definitely think they're going to be wild card contenders, but I don't think that they're Super Bowl contenders. But the schedule really will help them to make the wild card. As a kind of big picture question, when do you decide that your projections don't jibe with what you believe? And then what does that mean about the projections in terms of how you might adjust them going forward? Well, we're always looking for ways to make things more accurate going forward. But the trick with any kind of projection system is that you want the best projections for 32 teams over a number of years. You don't want to optimize your projection system just for one team that you don't like the result that comes out. Sure. That's why when we write Football Outsiders Almanac, we put a bunch of words next to the numbers because there are places where we disagree with our projections and we want to say so. That being said, the fact is we tend to be optimistic. I mean, we not football outsiders. We just meaning sports fans in general. We tend to be more optimistic about more teams than we're pessimistic about because when you're going into a season, you always sort of imagine a best case scenario for every team. And certainly, you know, you don't imagine lots of injuries, but every team you have to expect an average number of injuries for. And so not every team is going to reach its expectations that are based on a best case scenario. 
if you ask fans how well they think their team is going to do, you'll end up with an average that's a lot higher than eight and eight. But some of those teams are going to have bad things happen to them that are unexpected and will end up underperforming. So when you do a projection system, the, all that possible underperformance is built into the projection. Well, and in the case of the Browns, fans are probably more likely to have for the last 20 years projected downward. But this is the first time that fans are projecting upward. Yeah, it's it's a little different to talk about the Browns as serious playoff contenders. It does doesn't it feel different? I mean, uh, we're not used to this, and we're not used to people are really down on the Steelers. Likewise, and we happen to be up on the Steelers this year. We have them as our projected division favorites. So it's like down is up and up is down. You mentioned the Browns' defense being a question mark or a reason in your projection to kind of look more at the at the downside uh, possibilities. Um, but from a, a macro sense, one of the things that you guys have written about for years is how offensive performance is more durable and predictable than defensive performance. And so I'm curious about how that affects your confidence in the Browns prediction, but also just more broadly, you know, that that also influenced your projection of the Bears and just how we should think about defense here. Right. I mean, it sort of gives for uh, teams where our, our defensive projection differs more from conventional wisdom. You know, there's more of a reason to believe that perhaps we're wrong. But then again, there's also more of a reason perhaps that we're extremely right, that their defense will like collapse. Because our average projection is an average of all possibilities, but that includes the good possibilities and the bad possibilities. I, I mean, I will say they added so much talent to their defensive line, but there's like no depth there. So if they get hit by injuries, that's the big question mark that we don't know about before the season. But if they get injury, hit by injuries, Cleveland is in particular trouble as opposed to, say, a team like Philadelphia that has a ton of depth. So Chicago is an interesting one because that is probably the team where we have the biggest difference between us and conventional wisdom. And we are projecting Chicago still to be like the fourth or fifth best defense in the league in our projections. But here's the thing. The offensive projections in our DVOA ratings, right, which are how efficient a team is compared to average. In offense, the projections run from like minus 20 percent to like plus 20 percent. In defense, they run from like minus 8% to like plus 8%. And this is a much smaller range that represents the sort of the much wider range of possibilities. So the average of all possibilities on defense is much closer to average than the average of possibilities on offense. Like we know that as long as Drew Brees doesn't have some massive decline or get hurt, that New Orleans will be a really good offense, right? We know that Kansas City unless something really crazy happens, will be a really good offense. We don't know that with defenses. And so for Chicago, even to be like the fourth or fifth best projected defense, last year they were 26% better than average, which was one of the 10 best defenses we've ever measured in 33 years of stats. Their mean projection for next year, for this coming year, is 5.3% better than average. And again, that's like the fourth or fifth best projection of any defense. But you can see where that's so much weaker than how actually good they were last year because there's so much more of a question mark about how good defense will be. The other thing I'll say about Chicago, I talked about Cleveland with turnovers. 
Chicago lapped the field last year in takeaways. 19.1% of all drives ended with a takeaway. That is absolutely going to regress to the mean this year, making their defense not anywhere near as spectacular as it was a year ago. I want to pivot back to offenses because one of the probably biggest outliers, certainly this year, maybe ever, I don't know, you tell me, is the Arizona Cardinals. They've overhauled everything. Cliff Kingsbury is the head coach with the air raid offense. They've got Kyler Murray, whose college numbers were absolutely ridiculous. They're going to run a crazy spread formation that is you know, unlike the typical NFL offense. How difficult was it to project them? And do we have any sense of you know, how much they can improve? Because they were a terrible football team last year. Yeah, I mean, I think your your mean projection for them has to be a significant improvement, and that still makes them one of the worst offenses in the league, even if they improve significantly, because they were one of the 10 worst offenses we've ever tracked last year. And we have them 26th in our projections for this year, which is just a huge, huge improvement, even though it still makes them near the bottom of the league. But do we even know what they're going to do? I mean, how do you even measure what Cliff Kingsbury is going to do? Yeah, it's really hard to tell because, I mean, for one thing, look, Kyler Murray, the history of top prospects coming out of college has been that very rarely did a player play only one year of college football before entering the NFL, like start for only one year. There's only like three or four guys in the last 25 years that did that as top prospects, like top first or second round picks. Uh, Brock Osweiler, Mitchell Trubisky, Mark Sanchez, Cam Newton, if you don't count his year of junior college experience. Two of the top three prospect quarterbacks this year Kyler Murray and Dwayne Haskins had only one year of college starting experience. So that makes predicting what they're going to do in the NFL really variable because we just don't have any experience with top prospects that have that little college experience. Plus, the the fact is that the scheme that Kingsbury is bringing to Arizona is so different from what they did last year that you're, you're like, you don't know how much do you base things on what happened last year. It's This is the first time that a team is going to run primarily four wide receivers since the run and shoot days, which is like 25 years ago. This will be good uh, data for you on how this works. We'll help make the projection stronger. Unfortunately, it'll be only one data point. If we had like <laughs> eight or nine data points, that would be a little better. Well, if Kingsbury succeeds... More data points, baby. NFL's a copycat league. Just more data points, baby. Soon you'll have the guy who cleans Sean McVay's office getting a head coaching job. (laughs) I also wanted to discuss the holdouts that uh, continue by a couple of the top running backs in the NFL, Ezekiel Elliott for the Cowboys and Melvin Gordon for the Chargers. Football Outsiders has been at the forefront in kind of accurately describing the value of running backs and the modern NFL running backs that used to be the stars in the league and have now, you know, been kind of diminished in terms of their perceived importance in in the league. Do you feel like this has been one of the biggest shifts in terms of how teams understand the way football is played? And do you feel kind of any sympathy for running backs like Elliot and Gordon, who are kind of bearing the brunt of that. Yeah, I do think that this is probably the biggest effect that analytics has had on the NFL over the last 15 years is in the valuation of running backs. And I I do feel, 
you know, a little bit for those guys. They're obviously very hardworking athletes. I don't want to diminish what they do. And they get punished and, really badly. And they hurt. And the thing is that as you go lower down through levels of football, the running back becomes more important. There's more differentiation between good and bad running backs. So these guys, for most of their lives, have been really important players. And then suddenly you get to the NFL and the whole like, quote unquote, running backs don't matter concept is not a football concept. It's an NFL concept specifically. It's not a new concept, though. There have been head coaches through the generations that have believed that running backs are effectively interchangeable. Well, I don't think ever quite to the point of what analytics suggests. I mean, sometimes you'll have coaches who pick running backs up as undrafted free agents and lower round picks. But that doesn't mean that they feel like running backs are replaceable. It's just that's what they could get at the time. I mean, a good example of that is New England, right, which New England was successful for years with primarily lower round and undrafted Mm -hmm. running backs like Ben Jarvis Greenellis. But when he's wanted one and had a first round pick to use on one, Bill Belichick has twice used a first round pick on a running back, both Lawrence Maroney and then Sony Michelle last year. So he's, you know, as much as we like to think of Bill Belichick as being on the forefront of analytical thinking, he's not when it comes to this idea. It's just that for a while, he didn't have a first round running back. So, you know, one of the things I remember from way back in the day with football outsiders is the idea of the curse of 370, this idea that running backs that had 370 more or more carries during the regular season would suffer a major injury or a loss of effectiveness the following year unless they're named Eric Dickerson. I'm reading from the the dictionary de- definition of the curse of 370, but I saw in the current edition of your almanac that the curse of 370 is dead because nobody carries the ball that much anymore. That's right. It's sort of pointless at this point. First of all, it was always a little bit of a, you know, people said to us, you know, that's not very analytical. Well, you know, it was sort of a an obnoxious way to state a general point. It's a heuristic. Don't overuse your running backs. But yeah, nobody overuses their running backs anymore. So it's kind of a moot point. Most teams, look, even teams that have one guy, for the most part, they use a bit of a timeshare. Uh, the Chargers, even with Melvin Gordon as the guy last year, still used a good amount of Austin Eckler. There's only a couple of teams that don't really use their backups. Carolina is one with Christian McCaffrey. And Dallas has been another with Ezekiel Elliott. Although we'll have to see what happens when Elliott comes back, assuming Elliott comes back, because Tony Pollard has looked so good at the preseason that you wonder would they give Elliott a little bit more rest and use Pollard a little bit more than what the, the amount of rest that they've given Elliott in the past and the amount that they've used backups in the past? Holy moly, the most attempts in the NFL last year, 304. Yeah, things have changed a lot since Larry Johnson, whatever, ran 410 times or whatever he did for the Chiefs like 12 years ago. And we didn't mention Le'Veon Bell, who's obviously at the forefront of running backs feeling like they're not valued appropriately. Yeah. Aaron Schatz, the book is The Football Outsider's Almanac 2019, The Essential Guide to the 2019 NFL and College Football Seasons. Aaron, thanks so much. Hey, thanks for having me on. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Aaron Schatz of Football Outsiders will be back and we will talk to him about the Houston Texans. What are they doing? 
Stay tuned. We'll talk about Andrew Luck's retirement. We'll talk about who they think at Football Outsiders is going to be the best and the worst in the NFL. And if you want to hear that and you're not a member, you can sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. And you can do that signing up at slate.com slash hangoutplus. On Saturday night in Portland, Oregon, the hometown Timbers of Major League Soccer beat Real Salt Lake one to nothing on a goal by Diego Valeri in the 16th minute. In the stands, though, the real action didn't happen until the 33rd minute, when members of the Timbers Army supporters group began waving flags bearing the symbol of the Iron Front, a paramilitary organization created to oppose nascent fascism in Nazi Germany that was banned by Adolf Hitler in 1933. The Iron Front symbol, three hours pointed down and to the left, has been at the center of a dispute between fan groups and Major League Soccer, which explicitly banned its display at games under a new code of conduct that attempts, predictably clumsily, to define what political means in the context of a sporting event. Joining us now to discuss the dispute is Sheba Rawson. She is the president of the 107 Independent Supporters Trust, a nonprofit that operates the Timbers Army and the Rose City Riveters, a fan group for Portland's women's team, the Thorns. Hey, Sheba. Hey there. Let's start with a little background about Timbers Army and the political messaging in the stands in Portland. Is this a new thing prompted by Trump and Charlottesville and white nationalist protests there, or has there been a tradition of mixing soccer and politics in Portland? The Timbers Army has long been anti-racist, anti-fascist, and active about it in the stands and in the streets. Uh, If you go back to before MLS, when we were in our USL days, we'd had anti-fascist banners, signs, and symbols in the stands. And our clubhouse named the Fanladen is named after St. Pauli's uh, clubhouse, which is another explicitly political anti-fascist club in Germany. And with Major League Soccer, I mean, this is a confluence of, I think, happenings. Uh, The league, to its credit, has cultivated a diverse and progressive fan base, young, multicultural, multi-ethnic, LGBTQ friendly. What it didn't seem to anticipate here was that the cohort would seek to use games as a forum for that political expression, especially now in the age of Trump. And it is true that you've seen more explicit messaging from us in the last couple of years, just as we've noticed, as everyone does, that there are a lot of people in marginalized groups who are feeling a lot less safe out in the streets. We wanted to make sure that we were sending a message that everybody's welcome. So if you look at our front banners over the last few years, they've been a lot more explicitly calling out racism, calling out homophobia, uh, making sure that immigrants know that they're welcome. So the messaging probably has been a little more pointed from us in the stands, but we're not the only ones to do that. Can you walk us through what the conversations have been between you guys and the club and Major League Soccer as this has played out in the last, I I don't even know how long it's played out over. Has it been months or, or a year? Well, so for for the Timbers Army, we've known that this has been an issue for about a year, Um, but the league has not really had any conversations with us yet. We have regular meetings with the front office uh, as the the board of the 107 Independent Supporters Trust, and they we were flying the uh, you know the um, the Iron Front flag in 2017 with no problem. Mid 2018, we were asked not to display it, and uh, we said, "Are you asking? Are you telling?" They said, "We're asking." Said, "Okay, noted," and we continued to display it. But they let us know in the offseason that there was a new fan code of conduct coming and that it was their anticipation that the Iron Front flag probably wouldn't be allowed to fly under the new 
code of conduct. So we kept trying to talk the front office through this in the off season when we met with the Independent Supporters Council in Dallas in January, which is representative from supporters groups of all kinds of folks all over the country and in Canada, um, and not just MLS teams. We talked about the fan code of conduct there because we, we had all seen drafts of it. We also had Pavel Klemenko in from FAIR, who is a guy who works with, um, works, works with clubs on uh, issues of racism and fascism in Europe. And so he was consulting with us as well. Anyway, so we knew in January that this was likely to be an issue. And then when we all got back to our respective clubs before the season started, they all rolled out the uh, fan code of conduct with us. And they had the same talking points. So several supporters in other cities heard the same message we did, which was specifically that Iron Front wasn't okay to fly, but there was nothing in writing. So club folks told supporters just verbally behind closed doors, yeah, you're not going to be able to fly the Iron Front flag. We pressed our front office because we had nothing in writing anywhere. And finally in May, they gave us something in writing, um, which we disagreed with and we, we said so. Um, we posted about our concerns back in March. Uh, we posted what the front office gave us to post. We posted it on our website for them. And then, uh, then in July, uh, the Iron Front flag flew in both our section and in the Seattle supporter section in Seattle Stadium. And um, our, our security went after it within the first couple of minutes in our section, but it was allowed to fly for the entire half, second half in the Seattle section. And then Seattle got a warning, an official warning from their front office, and they pushed back. And then we talked together, and then we we had that we had the action that happened uh, on uh, the twenty third. And that was a couple of weeks ago in yeah. Portland. Uh, fan groups from both teams agreed not to cheer at all for the first thirty three minutes of the game. No flags, no singing, no nothing. And this is your big rivalry game. And then in the thirty third minute. You rolled out the Iron Front flags and other cheers, um, as did the the Seattle supporters. And this was a very clear message. This was a nationally televised game. And then it sort of steamrolled afterward when one of the Timbers owners reportedly was talking to fans after the game and blamed them for not cheering and for effectively losing the game. Like, you didn't support us. Yeah. So uh, it had actually been building up to the 23rd for the few weeks prior. You would you started to see Iron Front imagery around the league, and you saw under the hashtag a united front people posting pictures of T-shirts, uh, two sticks, banners, those kinds of things. But then it all came to a head on the 23rd, and then and yes, the uh, the owner was not pleased. Um, <laughs> I won't give the direct quote because I wasn't I didn't hear it, but um, but he, it was reported that he said some pretty not nice things after the game. Yes. I think he said you fucked us tonight. We're, <laughs> We're allowed okay. to say that. Yeah, you're an, you're an elementary school principal. You shouldn't say that. <laughs> Thank you, but yes, you you can you can read about it online too. I'm sure. So it is a huge deal that we talked with Seattle about this protest because uh, if you look at rivalries in MLS, some of them are fairly recent. Some are not as heated. This one goes back. It predates MLS. And you will always see this is probably one of this is our typically our biggest game of the year is against Seattle. And uh, there was a supporters cup on the line, uh, the Cascadia Cup, which is something that supporters um, literally bought with five and ten buck throws uh, to buy this uh, 
trophy that we pass uh, from one supporter group to the next. And whoever has the most points among us, Seattle and Vancouver, gets that cup. And we've had that, like I said, since before any of us were in MLS. We usually have huge TIFO displays for these games. There was no TIFO display whatsoever from our side, which is... um, which I'm sure was very disappointing to folks who look forward to those things, but we really wanted to make sure that that the message was received. And for Seattle and Portland to come together on something like this lets you know how big it is because we there's no love lost between uh, the supporters and the teams. It's it's a very heated rivalry, and to to be silent together, to fly the Iron Front flag together, we really wanted to make sure the league knew that there are some things that are bigger than sports. My sense is that the league does not want to have to deal with this at all. This is like not something that they know how to deal with. This is not something they want to have to figure out. Um, the Timbers front office has said that the iron front symbol is widely associated with its frequent use by Antifa, often in the context of violence at protests or counter protests. The Seattle Sounders front office in a letter equated the iron front with the far right groups, the Proud Boys and Patriot Prayer. And so you have these, you know, this league and these teams in the position of making these decisions about what constitutes politics, what constitutes things that are over the line in terms of politics, that they're certainly not interested, I think, in defining and also not equipped right. to handle. So is is your sense that they just want all of this to go away and want it to just want it to stop? Is that their goal? I mean, I, I'm just having to guess because the league has been pretty silent on this. I mean, if you go to MLSsoccer.com and look for Iron Front, I don't think you'll find the phrase anywhere. Um, and we tried to warn the league through our front office about what we saw coming because when you look at the fan code of conduct, it lists some things that are pretty much no brainers, right? You know, nothing racist, nothing homophobic and all these, all these pejorative negative things. And then nothing political, which is a squishy word that's hard to define. And exactly what we were afraid was going to happen happened. I mean, you had Ali Bedoya um, after a goal run over to a field mic and yell uh, that we need to do something to end gun violence. Yeah, that was in Philadelphia. Right. And he got, oh, it was player of the week or goal of the week, even though he wasn't on the ballot. So basically he was a write-in candidate by the press and by fans. So uh, then the very next week, somebody in Atlanta had a banner that said end gun violence. And that banner was removed as political. I mean, <laughs> this is exactly the kind of thing we were worried about is people making decisions on the fly, uh, trying to determine what's political and what's not political. Sure. Um, and we were also very concerned about the message that it sends to say, of all things, the one thing that you're going to mention that you're going to deal with is Iron Front, to say, we're going to pick this anti-fascist symbol as, as a hard line to say, we're not going to deal with this. When, when Don Garber gets asked about somebody in a MAGA hat, and he says, well, I don't know how I'm going to deal with that. I don't, you know, I don't really know if I, I see when you send those kinds of messages, that's, that's a dog whistle to folks that should not be getting any more comfortable in the stands. Yeah, look, the league is no doubt worried that fan groups will incite violence, that white nationalists will target fans who are holding Iron Front banner flags, and they want no part of this, and I understand that they don't want any part of this. Well, and Portland has also been this locus of 
of confrontation, um, you know, that's been kind of staged in the streets, all these rallies sure. that people are looking for, for trouble in Portland specifically. Right. So the league sees that. They're not dumb, the front office of Major League Soccer. They're trying to create this safe, anodyne, family-friendly corporate environment in stands. But then you've got these politically engaged progressive fans who aren't having any of it and are being supported by players. Um, one of the Timbers wore an Iron Front logo T-shirt in the locker room after the game against Seattle and the Seattle and, and Portland teams got together before the game and the captains were holding, you know, little pennants that said anti-fascism, anti-racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and for a league to be concerned about uh, inciting violence, we got to be honest with you, you know, this, we didn't have issues until the ban happened in right. the sense that after the ban happened in Seattle, that's when um, armed white nationalists showed up at Seattle's bar before the game uh, to try to get in. Um, so it's not as though, it's not as though banning the symbol has, is somehow going to make things safer. And, and I will say that, I, that the league, the league can't have it both ways. Um, we always joke about being in the B roll of uh, um, advertisements for tournaments. We're not even in because they, they love, they love the crowd shots, right? They love the raucous, um, rowdy, boisterous, enthusiastic support, but that that comes with uh, that comes with some things that maybe they don't know how to control and they don't they don't know how to handle, and they need to be able to accept that part of who we are is uh, an inclusive bunch of folks who are going to be standing up for marginalized folks in the stands and on the streets. And there is this larger debate in the country right now going on about, you know, the, the very kind of simplistic gloss is like, is it okay to punch Nazis? Or, um, you know, Donald Trump tweeting in, in July, consideration is being given to declaring Antifa the gutless radical left whack jobs who go around hitting people over the heads with baseball bats. A major organization of t- terror would make it easier for police to do their job. I wonder if part of this... Um, Sheba has to do with as NFL owners were afraid of a Trump tweet or inciting him as if Don Garber and MLS is afraid of Trump getting onto this and being like, oh, MLS is the uh, sports league that supports Antifa. Everyone should, you know, boycott them. Yeah, I, I cannot say what was in the league's minds when they set this up, but I do think they can walk this back. I re- if they if they decide to, it wouldn't be hard to say. You know what? Upon further reflection, we we took a stab at this at this code of conduct, but we need more help um, because this isn't the first league that's ever dealt with these issues. Um, there are folks uh, around the world who've dealt with issues of racism, xenophobia, fascism, all those kinds of things, and and having codes of conduct. FIFA has their four pillars of human rights. Um, that, that you could use to guide the work. There are people who are human rights experts who can help. You can invite marginalized groups to the table to figure out how to write this code of conduct. So you could say, we're, let's take a brief pause here. We're not going to enforce these things while we sort it out. We'll just deal with behaviors as we always have, right? If somebody's misbehaving in the stands, we can deal with it. That would be my suggestion, but I don't, I don't know that they know how to do that because they're not saying a whole lot publicly about it as a lead. 
So you've now had two games in a row where members of Timber's Army have flown the Iron Front flags. Um, there have been protests. They've been obvious and public, and ownership has taken notice. But as of right now, they haven't done anything to crack down on this. Mm-hmm. Are you concerned that they will? Well, we certainly hope that they don't because we don't think that their position is the right one. So if they could find a way to pull back and let it go for now, then we might find a way forward. But if they do crack down, we will know how to act. And I will say this, sometimes we get asked, well, what are you going to do? What are you going to do if they crack down? I guess I would just answer like this. If you're familiar with how supporter culture works, we have these displays called TIFO, right? Giant painted banners. Nobody talks about TIFO. The first rule of TIFO is no one talks about TIFO. Why? Because what makes it amazing and impressive and and so successful is that nobody knows about what it's going to say, what it's going to look like until it actually happens. And I guess I would just say that's the sort of thing you can expect for direct action in the stands. Sheba Rawson is president of a supporters group that runs the Timbers Army fan club for the Portland Timbers of Major League Soccer. Sheba, thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Now it is time for After Balls. Stefan, you wanted to celebrate the best moment of the first big full weekend of college football action. Mm-hmm. I did. And are you going to tell us what that moment was? It wasn't like a game or anything, obviously. It was a mascot? It's a mascot. It was Jackson State's mascot who got a penalty flag thrown on him for running into the end zone to celebrate with the players after a uh, touchdown against uh, Bethune-Cookman. And if you watch the video... He gets right in there. I mean, he's in the end zone. The players are still fighting for the ball, so the play is not over yet. It's quite amusing. It is amusing. I highly recommend the clip. It's in the end zone, but it looks like when the players are kind of in a scrum for a fumble and the mascot's in there just like pulling people off. Yeah. Yeah, so 15-yard unsportsmanlike conduct, Jackson State mascot for coming onto the field. The mascot is Wavy Dave. It seemed very sportsmanlike to me, actually, what he was doing. And Wavy Dave is named after David Wavy Dave Chambers, who graduated from Jackson State in 1988, was the mascot, embodied mascot dumb at Jackson State, died in 2006 because of kidney disease. But the Wavy Dave legend has lived on. Best known for his animated end zone antics of riding a unicycle and plowing headfirst into the goalposts. He exuded a style of sportsmanship that that endeared him to generations of Tiger fans. Nothing more sportsmanlike than plowing headfirst in the goalposts on a unicycle. Stefan, what is your wavy Dave? Since I afterballed last week about Carly Lloyd kicking a football through uprights from 55 yards away and about the history of women kickers, there have been developments. According to Lloyd's camp, at least three NFL teams reached out to her and one had been willing to let her play in its final preseason game. Lloyd told Fox Sports that she was talking with her trainer and husband about the reality of playing in the NFL. They both feel that I could do it and should consider it, so I'm seriously concerned considering it as it's a challenge, I would probably enjoy it. Let me just say that I'm a thousand percent behind Lloyd trying to kick in the NFL. She is one of the physically and mentally toughest, most composed, confident, unflappable, no bullshit, no fucks left to give athletes that I have ever watched. I can say from experience that with several months of preparation, Lloyd easily could learn enough technique to make extra points and mid-range field goals in a game-like setting, wearing equipment. This is saying less than anything, of course, but she'd be a shit ton better at kicking a football 
than I was at kicking a football. The story would be irresistible. Fox made an excellent TV show about a woman pitching in the major leagues. Lloyd in a training camp would be hard knocks crack. It would be soft pub for an NFL that's trying to combat the image of football as a death warrant, and it would get more women interested in the game. It would also be a positive message of equality and empowerment, one of the greatest female soccer players infiltrating the most male athletic domain and not looking, at least in terms of the act of kicking, entirely out of place. But if Lloyd and the media are going to treat the prospect of her making a 53-person roster a genuine possibility, then a reality check one notably absent from the coverage last week, is in order. There's a reason you didn't see anyone who understands place-kicking pronounce Carly Lloyd an actual NFL prospect, because she isn't and she wouldn't be. First, kicking a soccer ball and kicking a football are vastly different acts. Forget the five steps that Lloyd took on the 55-yard kick. Even with a year of full-time training, Lloyd would have trouble erasing a lifetime of deeply ingrained soccer behavior. My friend Andy Glockner tweeted about this. Glockner switched from soccer to place kicking at our alma mater, Penn. He kicked thousands of balls and made the team as a walk-on. It took until my last season, four years into the process of learning how to kick, to finally feel like I had a clue, he wrote. Now to the physical. Lloyd told the Washington Post that kicking a ball far has got nothing to do with leg strength. Everyone thinks, oh, you need a big, strong leg to kick a ball. No, it's all technique. That's just not accurate. One, Lloyd is in her late 30s, which matters in terms of strength, muscle mass, and speed. Two, she's 5'8 and weighs 140 pounds. NFL kickers average around six feet tall and weigh 205. Assuming Lloyd has even equal technical ability to an established kicker, which he probably won't, she'll be at a huge disadvantage compared to a 205-pound dude with longer legs and more muscle mass who will just kick the ball harder, faster, and farther. A common bro argument in the last week has been that Lloyd would be a special team's liability because she might have to make a tackle. That's not relevant at all. Most kickers don't end up making tackles. But it's not irrelevant that if something went wrong, a 140-pound person literally could be killed on an NFL field. That is an absolute truth and it would be an issue for a team considering whether to let her go on the field. Finally, pure ability. It's amusing to say that Cody Parkey sucks or that all kickers must suck because Blair Walsh is getting another chance, but they are better than almost anyone on the planet at kicking a football. Probably 80 or 90 kickers attended NFL camps this summer. NFL teams have spreadsheets with the cell phone numbers of probably 100 more kickers. Every one of them can kick a ball 70 yards or even more from a snap and hold. There are almost 700 kickers in college. Every one of them and hundreds more in high school can kick a ball 55 yards with two steps. Testosterone is a formidable opponent. As Glockner said, there are hundreds of guys physically superior to Lloyd with experience who couldn't get to the NFL. You didn't see a single NFL kicker say that they thought Carly Lloyd could kick in the league. Adam Vinatieri called her 55-yarder a heck of a kick, and then he noted... The extra steps, the absence of a rush, the slow time to the ball, and the low elevation. Stephen Hauschka of the Bills offered to help Lloyd train. He was tactful, but he was pretty clear. It's possible, he said, that a woman could kick well in this league eventually. 
Hauschka pronounced Lloyd's interest a really cool story. I admire Carly Lloyd's belief in herself. Kickers need to believe in themselves. But it's a thin line between confidence and arrogance and between arrogance and disrespect to those who have devoted their lives to something and do it better than anyone else. Lloyd's trainer, James Galanis, first said Lloyd would need a couple of weeks of training to get comfortable and acclimatized. Then he said she'd take the offseason to train so that she can be a success. Lloyd did a Q&A with Steve Serby of the New York Post, who asked, what kind of training do you think you would need to do? Lloyd answered, I need to get the minimal steps down, try kicking with a helmet and pads, and fine-tune the correct technique, if only it were that simple. I wonder whether the NFL actually would sign off on a legit Carly Lloyd tryout. There's no real parallel with me. The league wouldn't let me kick in a preseason game because it said it was worried about the credibility of its enterprise. Lloyd is an international superstar. She is a professional athlete. Her participating in a camp or a game would be a net benefit. But the NFL is nothing if not risk averse. And the risk of Lloyd getting injured on an attempted kick is some number greater than zero. Finally, the logistics. Lloyd plans to play soccer in the 2020 Olympics in Tokyo. The games run from July 24th to August 9th. Based on this year's NFL schedule, Lloyd would miss rookie orientation, rookie camp, half of training camp, and likely the first preseason game. Seems like it would be hard to compete for a job after that. All right. So that's Carly Lloyd. What about women kicking in the NFL more broadly? Like one of the things you said is she hasn't been doing this for very long. What if somebody did it for their whole life? I think it's possible. Totally. Like if you take a a soccer player at age 10 or 11 or 12 or 13 and begin to, you know, begin to train exclusively as a kicker, the way most kickers train now, it's not converts the way it was 40 years ago. Um, Kickers are going to camps and doing this to the exclusion of playing other positions in football and to the exclusion of playing soccer. I still think it would be hard. I mean, I do still think that physiology and testosterone make this challenging. But, you know, there are soccer goalies who can kick a ball 70 yards. Um, There's Nothing to stop someone from getting to the point where they are, you know, they can kick in Division One football and have a shot to to go out for the NFL. Yeah, I mean that's the reality here is that there are just so few NFL jobs that somebody could be one of the best kickers in the world. Right, no I think it's way more possible that you're going to see more women who are able to kick at the college level because there are so many more jobs available. Josh, what's your wavy Dave? Back in 2013, David Epstein, in his book, The Sports Gene, wrote about why major league hitters could not hit Jenny Finch, the softball pitcher, the fast pitch thrower. She struck out everybody that faced her and made them look foolish to such a degree that when it became Alex Rodriguez's turn to stand in, he refused to swing, saying, you're not going to make a fool out of me. That's the extent to which he made a fool out of everyone. Dave Epstein did a really good job in his book explaining why this happened, why the world's best fast pitch softball pitcher was able to strike out the world's best men, major league hitters. And the explanation, and I'm going to read from an excerpt of his book now, is that even skills that appear to be purely instinctive, such as jumping to rebound a basketball after a missed shot, are grounded in learned perceptual expertise and a database of knowledge about how subtle shifts the body alter the trajectory of the ball. 
without that mental database, which can be built only through rigorous practice, every athlete is a chess master facing a random board or Albert Pujols facing Jenny Finch. He is stripped of the information that allows him to predict the future. Since Pujols had no mental database of Finch's body movements, her pitch tendencies, or even the spin of a softball, he could not predict what was coming, and he was left reacting at the last moment. Some uh, synchronicity between mm-hmm. our, our afterballs here. Yes. But the idea is Albert Pujols, A-Rod, whoever, is used to facing a pitcher throwing overhand, Thousands upon thousands of times, and that whether it's Albert Pujols and uh, Dave mentions Roger Federer too, they don't actually have superhuman reflexes. They are not faster at reacting than even non-athletes. What they have is a very specific training and mental map and database of you know, seeing a tennis ball come to them in a particular way or seeing a baseball come to them in a particular way. And if you change it even slightly, then they're just totally, uh, you know, uh, out, out to lunch, out to sea. They don't they don't know what to do. Soccer ball, football. And so I thought of this when I was at the U.S. Open actually watching Roger Federer. And I didn't realize this. I had not sat in the low down seats before. I'd only sat high up at Ash Stadium. But a, a friend in the media clued me in that you could request the lower level seats. Ooh. So I sat really low down on the side of the court. So you can really see and appreciate the athleticism. So like and baseline was, view? So this is um, on the sideline. So um, it, it's close to the baseline, but you're looking at the players from the side. So when Federer was um, you know, on the side closest to me, I'm looking at him you know, not from behind, but from the side. And I can see the kind of power and uh, the grace with which he moves back and forth, anticipates shots. And you can really appreciate the speed of the game and their their genius, really. It's incredibly impressive to watch. And so I watched Federer beat uh, David Goffin that way. I watched Serena Williams from those seats um, win her fourth round match as well. So the reason that i um connecting this to the Jenny Finch, Albert Pujols thing, is that I think this is it's the same thing for sports fans as it is for athletes, because I have been trained as a viewer of tennis to watch uh, matches from the television view, which shows both players on screen at once. Um, it shows them from, you know, slightly above and behind the baseline. So you learn to appreciate and enjoy and understand the game from this vantage point. You can kind of anticipate as a viewer where the ball's going to go. You can see if the um, players are anticipating where the ball is going to go. You can just kind of track the game and follow it this way. Watching from the side up close, I had no idea what was going on. Like it was certainly easy to understand that Federer was blowing out Goffin, but it was really hard on a point to point basis for me to know who was in the lead, you, you're watching Federer hit it, you don't know where Kofan is standing, and you don't um, really perceive what's going on in the point, and you can really only understand it maybe in retrospect. But I never thought about it that way, about how as fans you get the standard television view imprinted on your brain And you would think that sitting up close at a tennis match like this, the game would become more legible to you. But that was maybe the match I've seen 
all tournament that I understand the least. I appreciate Federer more in, in, a, in, a, in a sense, but I really could not tell you like what happened in that match after, after sitting courtside. I think that's the case with almost every sport, and it goes back to the David Epstein, Jenny Finch, Albert Pujols conversation in as much as that players and coaches and people who spend their lives watching from a different vantage point than television can understand the match. And, you know, in my experience, like being in a baseball dugout, even even though baseball is the slowest, most obvious, and most boring sport to watch up close— it's, it is more disorienting. It is a different sort of perception and understanding of what's going on second to second that only experts really have. Football is the biggest one, obviously. You have no fucking clue what's going on when you're standing on the sidelines other than that you're terrified that someone's going to run into you. Um, <laughs> but the players who are there actually can and the coaches actually can perceive. But there's also a reason why football teams have you know coaches in the boxes up high to sort of discern more granularly what's going on. Well, that all makes sense. And I think where I usually sit, um, whether it's in a press box or in the stands or in an arena, is high up. And you can kind of see and understand whether it's a soccer game or a basketball game or a tennis match, what's happening as somebody who really hasn't played the game at a high level or really any level in in some cases, um, you can kind of see it develop uh, more like an X's and O's sense. But yeah, it's like totally weird uh, to have the vantage that the players actually have and realize that, yeah, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan to listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out. Go to slate.com slash hang up. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here, you perhaps, maybe even it's likely that you want even more of the Hang Up and Listen podcast. In our bonus segment this week, Aaron Schatz, who we talked with uh, earlier in the show, he'll be back and he'll talk with us about the Houston Texans and their bizarre series of moves. The two moves don't work in conjunction. One is a move for the future, I guess. I mean, trading Clowney away. And the other is a move that's very much for the present by getting Tunsil. The reason why they don't work together is that they screwed the Clowney thing up all, like already in the past. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangout plus. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zomo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.